If the only choice is between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence. You want to fight? Mahatma Gandhi. We'll give you a fight. Welcome to Fightcast. Hello, uh, fight aficionados, fight friends, Philistines. How, how are we all doing today? Um, this is David again with another episode of Fightcast for you. Uh, today I am talking with Ernesto Maldonado, who is a bit of a fixture here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul fight community. Now, uh, uh, how are you doing today, Ernesto? Not too bad. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, uh, I needed to uh, get an interview with you before I left. It was uh, vitally important to me <laughs> to, to do so, and we may not have as much time as we wanted because of a bit of a rigmarole. We're here at uh, Hammer Heart Brewing, by the way, in Lionel Lakes, Minnesota, and uh, while it is a lovely brewery uh, and uh, a mead hall type establishment, antlers everywhere, and Vikings shit, um, <laughs> uh, it is not conducive to podcast recording, unfortunately. All that all that wood, very, and glass, very reflective. Uh, and uh, there are uh, people inside enjoying delicious beer. I'm, I'm uh, drinking a smoked Dunkelweizen myself. But and you need to come here as well. It is wonderful beer. Absolutely. It is a bit of a crime on my part that I didn't find out about this place sooner. So, uh, without any further ado, I'd, uh, I'd love to just jump in here uh, with uh, what do you do uh, and how did you get into doing it? Uh, so, let's see. My biggest activity is in the SCA, uh, Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh-huh. Um, I'm one of the Masters of Defense for our kingdom. Yeah. And now, now interrupt oh, you really quick. I'm yeah. terribly sorry, but uh, no would you describe yourself more as a reenactor, as a martial artist, as a historical martial recreationist? Uh, um, as stage combatant? My mentality goes towards Western martial arts. Okay. Um, and this is purely my delineation. I think of myself more in terms of almost living archaeology of trying to bring... The, Research the way they fought. Excellent. As opposed to HEMA, yeah. which in my my mental classification, yeah. a lot of HEMA tends to go more towards a sport competition. Okay. Um, a lot more longsword than I do. I see. Um, I think that's a, kind of a fluid thing. Okay. To an extent, my experience was... In America, we started calling it Western Martial Arts. In Europe, they started calling it HEMA. Okay. So there's people who would refer to themselves as HEMA, who are closer to what I am, and there's people who call themselves WMA, who are closer to what they are. Gotcha. Um, the SCA as a group is more sport-oriented. Um, when I started, yep. there was only a few people studying historical manuals. We've gotten a lot bigger, and a lot more people are doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my focus tends to be more on trying to research and reproduce... Uh, the 16th and 17th century Spanish and Italian fencing. I see. And understand what they did and why as best I can. Excellent, excellent. So what you basically are is a historical fencing nerd. Yeah, that's a really wonderful. <laughs> hey, uh, well, uh, I, and I say nerd because I yeah. di- I differentiate nerd and geek. You know, yeah. geek is a great appreciator of something. Right. Okay. I am a great appreciator of Star Wars, but a nerd is somebody who has that uh, geekish appreciation for something and has a marketable skill to go along with it. Uh, my good friend Nick Glover with computer science is a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, I don't know how marketable it is, but I will say that. Um, Listen, man, I'm just saying yeah. that you can market yourself to historical yeah. television series yeah. and theater and. As you have done with Human Combat Chess, which oh, is where enough. I met you, um, okay. you know, uh, while the commercial aspect may not yeah. be there, you've certainly been able yeah. to lend your expertise to a artistic bent. Fair enough. 
And I do need to figure out a way to make just enough money to write the expenses off of my taxes. Oh. The business losses of what I spend on swords would be... Brother, that is a start, man. That is a start. So You, you worked Renfair. If you got a check, write it off. I, I, I haven't received my check. It should yeah. get here in the mail tomorrow. I really hope so because I'm moving in four days. I, I, did, I, did, <laughs> I did write off a buckler that way from Renfair. Um, yep, yep, yep. Anyway. Uh, so how did you get into this? So... I started, I mean, like a lot of people, I got into D&D back in high school. <laughs> yeah, um, duh. And then when I was, I think, a junior in high school, there was an article in the newspaper about the SCA's uh, 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was at the Texas Red Fair site was where they hosted it. Okay. So um, I called up the newspaper, found their contacts, and that's how I got directed to the SCA. Um, then when I started college, and this is, we're looking 88 right now. Okay. Um... I started out doing SCA Armored Combat, okay, which is full armor and fighting with rattan swords, but I quickly moved over to their rapier side. Excellent. Is there a point scoring system with that, or you did basically capitulation? Oh, uh, Actually, it's not capitulation like uh, Battle of Nations. It's a honor system called Call Your Shots. I see. If you get hit with a valid hit, you call it based on okay. where the target is. You lose the arm, you lose the leg, you call it a kill. Gotcha. So, very similar ethos to how we uh, conduct shobu or sparring at my Japanese sword school. It's very much an yeah. honor system as far as that goes, too. Very good. Yeah. Um, so, SCA, yeah. uh, how did that, did that lead you into uh, studying the manual straight away, or did you find a group to train with? Pretty, oh, there was no group back then. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, we're still mid-80s at this point, Well, right? late-80s, yeah. Late-80s, 80, gotcha. 88, 89. Okay. Um, the a- Texas A&M Library had the holy grail of the three Elizabethan fencing manuals. Okay. Which was a facsimile reprint of Saviolo, the Elizabethan translation of Degrassi, and Silver. Okay. And at the time we were fighting... No, no, uh, sorry, to, oh, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, who are all those people? So, um, in chronological order, Giacomo de Grassi was a Italian fencing master from the 1570s. Okay. Um... Saviolo was the second Italian fencing instructor in Elizabethan England. The first was Rocco Benetti. Okay. Um, who you Rocco. Rec- His name was Rocco. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, you sorry. May, you may recognize from Benetti's defense from, from uh, Princess Bride. Okay. However, he never wrote a book, so we don't exactly know what he, his stuff was. Okay. We do have Sil- uh, Saviolo's book. All right. Vicentio Saviolo. Gotcha. Um, so you studied these three books. Yeah. Which, at the time, we were trying to make this work with foil, modern foils and epes, which is just... Like about... sport fencing epes? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's all we had. Yep. So this is about as good as uh, trying to start a fire with two pieces of fake wood. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. There, were, there was insight I got out of it, but I would be embarrassed by half the stuff I thought of, I taught back then if I taught it now. Gotcha. But there were a handful of us trying to work on that. Um, there are also a couple of books that came out at the time. Um, the one that really got me, uh, Craig Turner and Tony Soper wrote Sword, I think it's Sword Fighting in Elizabethan England. Okay. Which did a really good analysis of them. It was written for a stage combatant's uh, perspective. Oh, okay. And this has got to be about 91 or so. What's that book called again? I want to say Sword Fighting in Elizabethan England. The authors are Craig Turner and Tony Soper. I do Craig Turner that. and Tony Soper. S O P E R. Excellent. I, I, I'm, I'm mentally taking notes yeah. as well as for our listeners, right. just so they can go and study yeah. up on these things because you're dropping a lot of names okay, here. Sorry, <laughs> you know. Um, I don't know how it would stand up to today's knowledge. Yeah. But at the time, it was the best thing around. Okay. Uh, right about the same time, John Clements came out with his Renaissance Swordsmanship. Now, John Clements, I am familiar with. Yeah. 
um, a lot of people give him a lot of credit. I personally would go with to- uh, Turner and Soper well above that. Okay. Um, so those were our sources for a good while. Yep. And basically trying, doing it through the cauldron of the SCA and trying to find what works. Which you have people trying to do historical, and then you have people trying to win. Other bigger focuses winning tournaments. So you have homegrown systems within there too. I see. I uh, see. Some of which are frighteningly good. Um, so in an effort to understand these swordsmanship systems, yeah. uh, you worked within the tools and the people that you had within the exactly, SEA exactly. to, to try and reverse engineer these things. Right. Excellent. Okay. Uh, I mean, you, yeah. you, you do work with the tools you have. I yeah. mean, uh, unfortunately, there was no uh, uh, stage combat open gym yeah. like there is right now. Yeah. Lubkey, aren't you glad I dropped that one? Yeah. The, on- <laughs> the only one around, really, that I know of who was doing stuff in my area was Rick Alvarez. Okay. Who, unfortunately, I started working at Houston Ren Fair. Shortly after he left, gotcha. so we I knew of him, but I never actually knew him. Gotcha. Um, so I lost, I did miss that, miss out on that opportunity. But I talked to him once. He kind of directed me to a couple of other sources. All right. Um, so mainly did that for a good while. Uh, did have one little mini breakthrough in the in the process. We had an event that was set in the 1590s, and they wanted instructors for different historical styles, and they wanted somebody to teach Spanish. Which nobody was doing at the time. We had a couple of obscure things, mainly coming from Egerton Castle's uh, okay. book, which Egerton Castle wrote a Victorian book on the history of swordplay. There is a whole, half the misinformation about swords can be traced back to that book. Really, he yeah. got it that wrong. He got it that it was Victorian scholarship. I did find out recently that he also wrote the book when he was twenty-four. And apparently oh. later in life, his lectures were much better. Oh, and he okay. recognized a lot of his mistakes. But he wrote a book when he was in his early in mid-20s yeah. when, no, when there was no other sources. I see. So it's unfortunate yeah. that he's known for his work that yeah. is full of inaccuracies yeah. that was not his... Right. Or, uh, self-admittedly not his best scholarship. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and he very much looked down on Spanish fencing. Really? Um, partially. And he, and he was... So he favored the Italian style. Of all of the stuff from this period he did, but... He was of the Victorian mentality that all society is, evolves to the pinnacle, which is Victorian. Oh, therefore, yeah, of the, course, yeah. Therefore, the pinnacle of fencing is modern fencing. Okay. And this being 19th century dry, dry fencing, I not see. modern electric. So why did he have such a mad on for the Spanish system? It doesn't work for that stuff. Oh, um, okay. For one thing, it's a much more circular system. Yep. So it really doesn't work well on strip. We've had conversations yeah. about this, so I know exactly um, what you're talking about. Now, when you're talking about on the circular system, you have two swordsmen facing off against yeah. each other, and rather than work linearly mm-hmm. like you see in modern sport fencing, right. the Spanish system instead emphasized working on the circle, right. uh, stepping on diagonals, and I think they even yeah. had theorems about this. Um, it's it gets complicated. Gotcha, but, um, gotcha. Yes. Yeah, the, you don't see a lunge in Spanish system, and you don't, and you see much more strikes in the diagonal. And as you're finding your opponent's weapon, you are using more circular movements. I see. Additionally, destre- uh, the Spanish system referred to as la verdad or destreza, often uh, yeah. shortened cut to destreza or LVD. Excellent. Um, was a fighting system, which very much was swords have edges. Cutting is a major part of it. Excellent. Therefore, trying to make it work with a foil and an epee again, not always the best thing. Indeed, because they have no edges. <laughs> right. So, but for this, um, going back for the uh, event, they basically got me as the best person around to try to teach this. So I took the little half bits I knew. And at this point, I was living in Austin, Texas. Okay. And 
at the University of Texas, they have a building called the Harry Ransom Center, okay. which is a rare book. Uh, it's a two stories museum and then a rare book collection. Okay. Their centerpieces, they have one of the Gutenbergs. Oh. But they also have, um, I want to say it's the 1600 Navarrez, okay. which was the first really complete book on Destreza. All right. Uh, they had the 1560s Moroso, an original. And a copy of Angelo that had been signed by his son. Like, to Baron so-and-so, best wishes, H.E. Angelo. Uh, no, no, who is Angelo? Angelo is uh, 19th, uh, 18th century English. Um, he was the one who really brought over the French small sword system to England. Okay, okay. Uh, you can find that one available. I know Jared Kirby over in, um, I want to say he's in New York, basically... Mm-hmm. Uh, put out a, an edition of that. I see. Now, mm-hmm. I realize I've been somewhat remiss because yeah. we're talking about rapier fencing mm-hmm. systems. We're talking about yes. swords, uh, uh, systems to fight with the rapier. And yeah. uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong at all, but to give a truncated, extremely <laughs> truncated history of these things, yeah. um, you go from the Middle Ages where the long sword, the arming sword, mm-hmm. um, were very prevalent. Uh, you go uh, when gunpowder becomes uh, very in vogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the swords get smaller. Um, it, on the battlefield, yeah, it remains right. somewhat different, but uh, as far as civilian self-defense go, you saw the swords shrink to the point where uh, it was a faster system. I am a... not even sure. I'm not sure the gunpowder is actually as big of the really? piece of it. Um, I've always been led to believe that gunpowder was the kind of com- genesis. That is, I think, the common view of things. All right. Um, I, did a cl- I took a class recently on Vadi, yeah. who is late 15th century. Yep. And a lot of people have looked at him as a um, just basically plagiarizing... Fiori, who's the big Italian master from the early 15th century. Okay. But what was pointed out was his footwork is actually very different. And actually his footwork is kind of a progenitor of the, what we, um, the term is Bolognese fencing. Okay. Uh, which is basically a 16th century, what we would call a side sword or a cut and thrust sword. I see. System. It's called Bolognese because there's five manuals in the in the system. I see. So we're not talking about the the very stereotypically slender rapier blades. No. We're talking something the, like in between an arming sword and a rapier, yeah. kind of, as far right. as blade width yeah, goes. You're, you're getting something, it's still a, it's largely what would still be used on the battlefield a hundred years later. Okay. But you're beginning to get the complex hilt. It starts out with simple rings. You don't have the full swept hilt or the full cup hilts yet. Okay. But you have a little more hand protection, which allows you to do more sword defense. And one of the things with Vadi that was pointed out is there is no equestrian in the manual. Okay. So you're looking at a change from knights who are training for battlefield to a rising middle class okay. who needs to defend themselves in the city. I and see. think of European cities with the very narrow streets. This has... So that's going to yeah. change your uh, context for everything. Excellent. This ha- this has a very strong yeah. parallel right. to what happened in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm always yeah. going to go back yeah. to that. And we're, I'd love to yeah. get into that conversation very soon, but uh, it, it still shocks yeah. me how similar the... Um, how similar yeah. the development in arms and fighting systems yeah. happened in completely opposite parts of the yeah. world, which just shows you how you know how more alike than different well, we humans are. Yeah. And you're not gonna you're not gonna be walking around carrying a longsword. Uh-huh. Longsword would be something you would bring to a battle. Yep. Something you would bring to a judicial duel. So if you look at the German sources yep. for longsword, most of them are written for the context of a judicial duel. Really? At least that's my Like a trial by combat right. for our Game of yeah. Thrones fans. Um, and I will put in with this, I am not an expert on German in any way, shape, or form. Yes. My, my expertise very much 
cuts off at the Alps. Um, <laughs> Excellent. That's a good way yeah, to put it. The Alps, the Pyrenees. If you're south of a mountain range, you're good. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So going back to your uh, personal evolution, yeah. you're you know it's 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 the late '80s, early '90s. Mm-hmm. You're uh, trying to you're resurrecting these things from the uh, from the older mm-hmm. sources, right? Uh, with the SEA. Now, how exactly did you get into further? Uh, um, study of this, and uh, how did you eventually find yourself with human combat chess? So, in the mid-90s, uh, I started working the Houston Ren Fair. Okay. And there were, there's this, uh, it was always two fairs in Texas. We had a yep. short run of a thing called Cavalier Days of Texas okay. in Austin, and then after that I worked at Scarborough, which is the Dallas Fair. Okay. And especially the, the Dallas uh, stage combat group. Yep. Um, a couple of people, um, Shane Richmond, Bill Riddle, were very big on trying to get a more historical fight style. Okay. Um, I've had a couple of really good fights with Barry Eisenberg, who the, our, the whole idea was to try to research the pieces and put more in there. Um, another guy, Bill Teal, had done some really good early uh, papers on the difference in styles. Okay. So we were trying to get a more historical slant into our stage combat. Which is, I, I'm all about yeah. that, personally. Which, so here's a little uh, pro tip to throw into your fights. Okay. So uh, one of my fights with Barry was uh, the final the big fight in the human combat chess at Dallas. Okay. And there were a couple of phrases that would uh, start out very very similar, but with a slight variation. So what I did was I yelled out my first move at him. But because I yelled out the first move in Italian, and I'm yelling squalimbrato, uh, mandrito, reverso, well, I don't think I These used are all stuff. names of techniques. These are the names of the first action. But as an actor, I was able to sell it as it seemed like I was yelling insults at him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is excellent! Uh, oh, that is that is excellent. It's a little little bit of a genius bonus for the uh, for the any Italian speakers in the yeah. in the audience on well, that one. And not even Italian. You have to know the fighting jargon. Ah, of course. Which, of especially course. in the mid nineties, nobody did. Yep. Um, but uh, so I was. Do- I worked. I stopped doing SCA in the mid nineties and was working Ren Fairs up until. About 2005. Okay. As like a street uh, character? Street character. I um, directed Comedia dell'arte troops. Okay. Um, from your earlier one, Jen, uh, sorry, uh, Mana Yeager. Yep. Uh, I, f- I started the group that she ran at the time that I she reported I see. That. I see. So, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, e. Araganti, by the way, yes. is the group he's talking about out of the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. Yes. Which is bad Italian for the arrogant ones. <laughs> Because when I found it, I was playing the Capitano, <laughs> yeah. who is the braggart soldier. Um, One of my favorite comedia characters oh, yeah. to play, obviously. Oh, I loved playing him. Exactly. Um, Did a whole uh, project on uh, comedia uh, back at Cornish, mm-hmm. uh, and the Capitano was uh, was my was my absolute favorite. Mm-hmm. I walked around with a big feather mustache mm-hmm. uh, when we made our presentation of the class. But uh, So, uh, are you finding yourself more and more into stage combat at this point, and away from kind of the yes. SCA reenactment? Right. Okay. In fact, the way I got back into the SCA yeah. was, I so in 2000, end of 2001, I moved to Minnesota. Okay. Um, about two or three years into working the Ren Fair here, my thought was I was never going to go back to the SCA. Okay. So I was showing up to just sell some of my stuff. Oh, right. And I get there, and suddenly they're not using foils and epes. They've got quality uh, replica blades. Huh. And one of the guys makes a reference to uh, Sweatnam. Like, wait. Ah, uh, I know Sweatnam. Actually, you guys are actually <laughs> studying manuals now? Wait, you're using weapons like this? 
Huh. <laughs> I leave for five minutes yeah. and everybody ups their game yeah. tremendously. And what I hadn't realized is largely thanks to the internet, yep. there was a huge boom that started coming, which is still going on on uh, historical martial arts. Yep. Because before it may be a, co- a case of, I found a copy of Fiori, uh, Fabris. Okay. And I'm trying to read it. Fabris is... Fabris is... There's three big Italian manuals that come out in the first decade of the 17th century. Okay. About four or five years apart for the three of them. You have Rodolfo Capafera, who's probably the best well-known. Capafera, by the way, if you've ever seen Princess Bride, you've heard them mention Capafera. Nicoletto Giganti. Okay. Who's very similar to Capafera. And Salvador Fabris, who has a very different stance. He was Italian, but was the um, fight master for the King of Denmark. Oh, okay. And his is possibly the, probably the most thorough of the books of that time. Okay. But so you've got these three manuals. If Before, if I had one of them and I was work, trying to work through it in a vacuum, yeah. there's all these difficulties of what on earth does he mean here? But when suddenly we have translations of multiples, yep. oh, this guy over here uses the same term and he actually defines it better. Now I can take that and figure out what this guy's saying. Gotcha. And so... You A had that, plus you had multiple groups starting to cross-pollinate of, okay, I've been working on this. Oh, I spotted this little piece here that nobody else had. Oh, this guy spotted this piece. Um, there's, and I'm not going to go into details partially because we're in a audio medium. Yep. But a really subtle uh, aspect of doing a passing step on where your foot's pointed. I see. That Guy Windsor uh, found over in Finland. Okay. Now, listeners, uh, those of you on a, a experience in stage combat will probably immediately know the things that Ernesto's talking about. For the rest of you, let's just say I'm going to post a lot of show notes in this Sorry. episode. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, there's there are so yeah. many different sources yeah. to draw from, thankfully, because the records are still here, yes. and uh, you know they survived the ages, and they and we're now uh, in the unique position of yeah. being able to recreate from oh. them. And naturally, you're going to be dropping a lot of names mm-hmm. and. Uh, Let's just say I'm going to do my best to follow up on that and provide the listeners with links in the show. While we're dropping names, uh, I just mentioned Guy Windsor. Yep. Uh, I really recommend his YouTube channel, Sword School. Sword School. Uh, His 9 to 5 job had been teaching historical fencing. Is this different from Scola Gladiatoria? No, that's uh, Matt Easton. Okay. Matt Easton gives more talks about subjects. Gotcha. Guy has a couple of, has lessons on his. I see. So Um, Sword School then. Yes. Okay. Check that, check that out, uh, YouTubers. There is a uh, rapier, an entire rapier seminar on his page. Okay. Um, Probably the top people I'd say for Italian rapier that I know of on YouTube, and I know there's more out there, him... Uh, Devin Borman at uh, Duello TV. Okay. Uh, I think Chicago Swordplay Guild is putting more stuff up now. Okay. Um, Jeff Jacobson down in California. Mm-hmm. And um, Dave, David Koblitz out of Atlanta. Okay. Those are the biggest ones I can think of off the top of my head. Excellent, excellent. A lot of Wikipedia pages are going to go up in the yeah. show notes on this one. Uh, so, um, backtracking slightly. Yeah. Why do you think it was that the uh, these particular, both Spanish, Italian, and later on English, uh, uh, fighting systems rose to such prominence? And uh, I guess that's a larger question that's tacked on to why the rapier rose to so much prominence. Um, I, a lot of, large part is always going to be cultural on the time and place. Yeah. Um, so... Like I mentioned, the city streets are affecting what's being used. Yep. The methods of of warfare are affecting things. Yep. Um, I know in some of the Spanish treatises, they talk about actions with greatsword specifically de- designed for galley combat 
on uh, the Mediterranean naval warfare. So we're talking about fighting on the decks of ships. Right. Okay. Which, unlike what we think of usually with the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, sailing ships doing broadsides, yeah. the 16th century uh, Mediterranean side, you're doing oared vessels... Which have they'd long since gotten rid of the battle ra- of the ram, yep. and replaced them with mucking great cannons. Yep. I mean siege level cannons. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, three to five of them on the front of the ship. Oh, okay. So f- we're talking frontal on the bow. Yeah, they, they they fire straight forward, and that's it. Okay. And you would basically go in effectively to ram because you're trying to uh, hit them and have your the spar. Go over the top, and then it basically becomes a clear their ship as quickly as you can. Oh, so we're talking about going all the way back to like um, Athenian and then later Roman naval practices of bringing it right yeah. up and then swinging that gate on top of their ship. Yeah. Well, in the case of the Romans, and then just going to town man to man on the other ship. Right, except instead of swinging a gate, you're basically charging over the front right behind the cannon shot. Oh, wow. Because they'd have the fronts raised up. Okay. So you've got like a little miniature um, redoubt at the front of. For people to be firing guns from where you're charging over. Um, famously, um, Miguel Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, okay. uh, lost his arm at the Battle of Lepanto in one of these engagements. Okay. Uh, so you're, you're on this Spanish galley, you're yep. ramming another ship, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, after some, like you said, mucking great cannon fire. Yeah. Uh, and what are you armed with when you're going over the top to the other ship? Well, so you'd have people with uh, guns behind you. Yep. The front men are either going to be with a sword and, buff, a sword and shield, okay. which the Spanish were very famous for. I but see. But you also see in Italian sources as well. Or the mucking great swords. Yeah. Um, Don Juan of Austria, who was the at, the admiral yeah. of the Christian le- uh, fleet at Lepanto, went into battle with a full great sword. Really? We're talking yeah. about a two-hander, oh, almost yeah. five-hander level... Yeah, uh, I... Mine is about five foot six, five foot four, so you're not quite as big as some of the German Zweihanders. But pretty big, yeah. nonetheless. Okay. And the patterns tend to be the way uh, Maestro Curtis defined it, uh, described something on one occasion I use it for this, is this is my death bubble. If you walk in my death bubble, well, you're going to die. That's what you get for walking in my death bubble. Yeah, exactly. People think of a greatsword as being these big, slow cuts. Yeah. What you end up having, especially in what I've seen of the Portuguese-Spanish systems, is it is just a constant flow. Yep. It is just there is no time. You're to cover a human the weed whacker. Yes. <laughs> um, that is a good thing. They, 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 they have uh, actions for guarding fallen comrades, fighting on a galley. Uh-huh. There's one called "Drive Your Enemies Before You," which is and hear the lamentations of their women. Just about. I'm sorry, that's the first place my mind is, is going to. Let me see if I can remember it. Two cuts from the right, thrust, and then a cut from the left back to position to just. And just cycle through that. Rinse and repeat. Oh, my God. And the thing that... That that, that completely destroys my images of what... Like, if you told him... If you say the words Renaissance naval combat to me, I'm thinking of something completely different than what it probably actually was. Well, you'd get that still with the English and anything on the Atlantic. Okay. You can't really do this kind of warfare on the Atlantic because of the waves, uh, because of the nature of the ships. Yep. But on the Mediterranean, where for the seasons that were... The open, se- the open yeah, season, the war season, the war yeah. season. Um, it was a much calmer sea. Uh, pretty much, it was cut. It cut off in mid October to mid March. That <laughs> that period, that time. No, you just don't take. You don't take the ship out. <laughs> I see. I see. So, because that's just moratorium on fighting during that time. It's just okay. Fighting happens best now. Yeah. Um, basically, the thing with that kind of ship is it is it is a streamlined, super engineered instrument. I mean, it was the product of three thousand years of. 
3,000, yep. 2,500 years of naval architecture and advancements. Gotcha. So it was a precision craft. You don't take that out when you might have a sudden squall show up. Absolutely not. You don't take yeah. the Corvette out in a squall. Right. You know, um, literally Corvette yep. being a ship. Uh, so how do we get the rapier from this? Um, I am not entirely positive on the exact transition. Yep. But what you tend to see over the course of the 16th and into the 17th century is a progression towards one more hand protection. Okay. As the hand protection becomes uh, more prevalent, you can start to guard with your hand forward. Okay. Now, uh, Matt Easton on Scalaguadatoria, actually there's a really good one of the on this, of you look at the medieval arming sword, all your guard positions, the hand is back, unless you have the buckler in front of it. I see. Because otherwise, hey, there go your fingers and fight's over. I see. Once you have more protection over the hand, now I can start to block with it more. Okay. Once that happens, my point's in line more often, now a thrust becomes a more advantageous action. Okay. Um, you see, so with Degrassi, 1570s, Yep. one problem that came, that people mistranslate him regularly okay. is they uh, are misinterpreted because they're very big of he says the thrust is most efficient and because it's in a straight line it does more damage well if you have your hand out in front of you right. then the thrust is just intuitive right well they, they take that though as the that's what he says that's what he always means ignoring that right below that hey what's the next chapter oh yeah which basically is when cuts are better <laughs> and basically once your blade is offline well, now a cut is more efficient because yeah. it takes one action to bring it in line and one action to thrust, whereas I could just be cutting you with that one action to bring it in line. So Excellent. basically it's a matter of whether I'm in line or not is yeah. to whether or not a thrust or a cut is better. So listeners, if anybody tries to tell you that a rapier was not sharpened, bullshit. Oh, no. <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So one thing is we a lot of things people carry for rapiers now yep. are much lighter. Okay. Partially because a lot of them are designed for a sport environment. Yep. Um, some of the really be- the, the higher end makers and the is some of theirs, not even all of theirs, are going to have a better taper to them. And this is only a piece of the blade mechanics. I not a I don't know enough of the detail to go into it. But one thing you want on a sword or a rapier is one you very much want it to taper from the strong to weak, so it should be wider at the base than it is at the tip. Yep. Um, there's a type of blade called the Schlager, which yep. is parallel. Yeah, straight all the way through. Which means you have a lot more leverage on your tip than you ever would with a real sword. I see. So it can teach you some bad habits. Ah, gotcha. With a proper rapier, it should also have a distal taper so that it's thicker at the base and narrows down that way. Uh, so it's almost okay. cut, it's more chiseled point. Both width-wise and thickness-wise. And thickness-wise. Okay. Um, this is why you see the diamond cross sections yeah. as well? Okay. And... The fuller, not a blood groove, a fuller... Thank you. I, I go to town on anybody who calls it a blood groove. Yeah. I'm just it saying. It's basically acting kind of like an I-beam where yep. it keeps that same structure as the uh, the diamond shape, yep. but takes excess metal to reduce weight. Excellent, yes. So it's, it's a reinforcement thing. But with a blade made that way, oh yeah, those will cut. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was fighting a guy from uh, the Chicago Swordplay Guild. Yep. And he had a Dinelli who is one of the top end makers in Europe. Yep. And I was able to keep his thrusts away and, and panic twice out of our uh, among the passes we did. He did these really nice little flick cuts at the wrist. And my thigh is still purple in places. Oh, he got you later. right there on it? Yeah, he got okay. me twice right across the thigh. And Oh yeah, no question it works. Um, I had, There was an Austrian guy I was fighting a couple, two years ago who... He had a 46-inch rapier. So 46 inches. Which, so we're not talking like small, light, no. you know, lightning-quick point-work yeah. he- point yeah. blades yeah. here. 
Um, and people think of rapier as, you know, also being very light. The thing was almost three pounds. Oh, jeez. And it was based on ones in the museums in his town. And people think often think that the long the long rapiers can't cut because of their length. I, would, I had a nice purple and green stripe across my uh, shoulder. Yeah. My view is it would not have severed the arm, but it would have cut to the bone and that would have finished the fight. Gotcha. And basically every... I do not know of a historic manual of a weapon we would consider a rapier that does not include cuts. Every single one does. Okay. Um, the, I think it's either Fabris or Capifero says if you're fighting groups you use cuts because yep. you can't control distance against multiple people. Yep. Um, Alfieri, who's 1640s, makes the comment that and everybody's going to be using similar um, civilian swords that untrained people are going to th- cut more than they're going to thrust. Yep. And so even with the blade that we would think of as okay. a mod- and from a modern perspective as being a rapier, your standard person is going to cut with it more than they're going to thrust with it. Th- that, you see, I... Th- that dispels a lot of myths that a person might have about that yep. weapon. And a lot of it comes from the fact that um, basically a, one of our common parlances comes from um, the old movie Jurassic Park yeah. of your frog DNA. Which, if you remember in Jurassic Park, they talk about, well, there are gaps in the DNA, yep. so they inserted frog DNA. Okay. Well, basically, whatever your background frog DNA is, that's going to color your perspectives. I because see. Because okay. so many of us were coming from either modern fencing backgrounds yeah, or from um, stage combat backgrounds yeah. that were coming from modern fencing backgrounds. Because stage combat evolved largely from 19th century stage work, which had a lot of modern saber in it. Yep. Um, so a lot of the thought process were there. I don't think it was till 2005 we changed our parries entirely. The, 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 the SAFD did? No, no, no. Or um, the, the no, SCA? No, the, the historic, uh, uh, there's people who still do it in the SCA, but uh, those who, who were doing his, studying the historical pieces. Oh, okay, okay. So the modern parry, as it's taught, comes from the French small sword parry. Yep. Which is, I keep my point on line and move my hand to, uh, to block. Yeah. This gives you a little more speed on your repost. Yeah. It gives it gives you an offensive advantage, but gives you a, it's a defensive disadvantage. I see. And it works with that particular weapon because it's very small and light. With a heavier blade like a rapier, if you do that kind of parry, it gives me your ramp, and if I press against your blade, it'll slide my sword straight through your weakest part. Physics being just, what it is. Yeah, and I can just force straight down the lever. Exactly. So, basically, it is... Suboptimal for this weapon, but because for the longest time people trained, their lineage, their frog DNA had gone through French fo- uh, foil on the way to get to there. I see. They were doing that. Um, there's even some now re- re-examining the basic fencing advance as to whether that's huh. what they would have used on the rapier. I see. I see. Now um, I've heard it said that in historical fencing, uh, as opposed to what we do in stage combat, mm. that there is no such thing as a static parry. That there is that a parry is simply a way to defend yourself while you work your next attack, and it's very much more of a Jeet Kune Do, you know, uh, work your work your attack uh, uh, using your defense as a springboard kind I, of thing. Now, is that true? I don't. One, there's. It's very hard to say never to anything. Yeah, yeah, that's um, true. That's true. The I have a lot of parries that could be considered static parries. Yeah, but they aren't usually the way they're done in modern in uh, stage combat. Yeah. Effectively, what I'm going to do is if I see your cut coming, I'm going to point my sword 
over the line I see it coming in. Yeah. That way, when it hits my blade, it'll slide straight yeah. down the, to the cross. Now, when we're talking about static parry, sorry, uh, yeah. we're, we're we're talking about like the parry is a separate movement that goes into another move, right. and and you know you 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 break down the fight into these. Very, yeah. very well separated and delineated yeah. movements because that's what an audience can yeah. perceive. Oh. If I, if you were to put a historical mm. fight on mm. a stage, yeah. the uh, the average audience would not know necessarily oh, yeah. what's going on because there's so much uh, tiny, subtle, right. nuanced work going on there yeah. that isn't interesting to watch. Right? You don't. I don't choreograph fights for my perspective because unless I'm doing going to choreograph for a group of people who also study things enough. Okay. Um, actually, to go back to the static parries, I also realized. Yeah. I was clouding my brain a little on the thought. Okay. Because I was thinking only in terms of cuts. Oh, okay. As opposed to a thrust where you have the parry repose. Yeah. That you definitely have. Um, they had an ideal in the early 17th century in some of the manuals of what's called a stesso tempo or a single time action where you basically block the shot and thrust in the same moment. Yeah. Motion. Okay. As opposed to a due or two tempo where I am do the parry and then I repose. They did both. Um, okay. But, um, yeah, uh, to go on touch, you're starting to mention for stage combat. I have a very different perspective because okay. one, you're working with um, actors who may have varying ranges of experience. Yep. And on a shorter time frame of whatever the rehearsal process is, as opposed to we've got years to work or months to work. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. Um, and again, you have to write for the a the audience you have. Yeah. And what they can recognize. So I'm often slowing actions down, making actions bigger. Yep. And then for the stage itself. So am I doing it at on a proscenium theater where all the audience is at one angle? Yeah. Am I at human combat chess where you've got audience on two sides? Yep. Or in the, on the Elizabethan stage yeah. where it's that big thrust. Thrust stage. Or the Ren Faire. Um, where it's in the round. Yeah. <laughs> well, usually in the round. Yeah. If you want, you can always mass- have it where there's an open angle and do it against the side of a building. Ah, that is true. At, that is, um, my fights at he, my fights yeah. at the uh, Renfest this year, as you saw, were yeah. very much in the round. Right. And there's actions I wouldn't do in the round. Yeah. Um, notably, yeah. Um, no, it's fine. The uh, punch into a napped hand against the face. Oh yes, because, I did. I did do one of those. Yeah. And I've made a point when I watched to stand in the angle to try to keep anybody else from standing at the angle. Oh, okay. Where you can see. The gap between, because you're not going, you're not making the connection. Yeah. So I would probably do a punch to the stomach or something else if I'm doing a or a grappling action. Much easier to mask. It's yeah. easier to mask those actions if you've got if you're in a round environment. Thank you. I am taking yeah. notes right now for that for yeah. next year. Also, if you're at a Ren fair environment or any other outdoor theater, if yeah. everybody is standing, don't go to the ground because only the front row can see what's going on. Ah. I've seen shows that do that, and suddenly half the audience has no idea what's happening. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so now, uh, how did you get involved in with uh, Six Elements Theater and their human combat chess show? I mean, as, since, since yeah. we're since we're talking yeah. kind of mostly about stage combat at this point, I think I saw the open gyms on Facebook. Yep, I think the Minnesota Stage Combat Open Gym. You mean over yes, at uh, over at University Baptist Church in Dinkytown? That would be the one. Yes. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Mike. I expect a royalty check yeah. at some point. <laughs> e- either that, or having friends who were doing chess one year. One, yep. of, the, one of the two. Uh, I, I honestly don't remember what it was. Yep. But after uh, spending a good bit of time there, I started choreographing shows at Ch- at HCC three years ago. So I think I've done three now. Yep. I did. Um, Let's see, my first one was Joanna and Phil doing um, 
a 16th century buckler fight. Was this in 2014? I believe I yes, witnessed this. I believe yes. I witnessed this. Yes, right. they yes they, they specifically referred to Bolognese. Yes, but that would be me then. They use the mortuary sword in Buckler. And yeah. uh, listeners, if you don't know what a mortuary sword is, think of a very, very, very simple basket hilt mm-hmm. called such because it looks like a human rib cage. I believe, uh, unless I'm wrong about that. I don't know, but I'm not sure. I, that that it's, you, it tends to be an English Scottish weapon. Okay. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Think of a basket hilt claymore type sword, right. but it's a bit smaller, not quite as a beefy of a blade, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a little bit faster, and you've got the basic idea of what a mortuary right. sword is. And then you have a buckler, which is, of course, a small uh, one-handed shield. Yeah, it doesn't have a queen to loop my finger over, so I don't do it. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Personal taste, there's cool things you can do when you aren't doing that. Yeah. Uh, the Germans have some nasty actions. Yes, they but, do. But not my thing. Yep. Um, so I did that one. The next year was Jin Sisko's saber fight, uh, military saber fight. Yep. Because on the side, I also do classical fencing. Um, I try every other year or so to go out to California. Okay. And study with the Italian Maestro program. Uh, okay. There's, there's a classical fencing program at Sonoma State. So in four, in four days, you go through the entirety of William Gogler's Science of Fencing. And if you can find a copy of that, listeners, buy it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm filing notes away for the is, future, um, too, on this one. It is. It was written 1960s or 70s, I think, but it is a compilation of classical Italian pre-electric fencing. Excellent, um, okay. And one of the best sources out there. Uh, especially for really getting yeah. your terminology down right. Indeed. I believe you also... No, uh, no, that was Mike Anderson. I'm thinking of the Halberd fight in 2014. Yeah. No, I haven't done a polearm fight there. Gotcha. Uh, uh, so what did you do in 2016? I know that you uh, choreographed at least one of those. This was, this year I did uh, Phil Henry's Sword and Buckler against yeah. Brandon's uh, Rapier and Cloak. Yes, yes. Phil Henry, I believe, had a Polish saber. Yes, that's right. This, which was, I have to say, one of the oddest... Matchups I've ever yeah. seen, but also you know a, a little bit of a historical fanboy's yeah. dream because you want to see these things in live right. and in living color mm-hmm. and in the yeah. flesh, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and those of you who are at that show, um, it was really good, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. So th- this is uh, by the this... way. If I go back to single teams, I want to see the Banshees more. Of course, you want to see the Banshees because I like choreographed. I want to see the Banshees more. The Banshees have the best weapon choices, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which is one of the things that uh, I personally think that chess is so great about is that you can see uh, live and in the flesh. Due to experts, I I, I feel comfortable calling you yep. an expert. You know, like yourself, who can bring back some of the historical techniques. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a firm believer yeah. that uh, history is always going to be weirder, wilder. Way more interested than anything we can make up. Oh, yeah. you know, unless you're, unless it's like Stephen King. Um, so th- this leads me to this leads me to a, a a bit of a debate that I've wanted to have with you for just a little bit. All right. Okay. So you know that I come from the Japanese tradition. Yep. You know that I come from the uh, Kaishin Shinkagiru system. The Shinkagiru coming down from Yagyu Munenori, yep. um, and this is of course during the Edo period, uh, after the uh, Warring States period had died down, and Japan was at relative peace mm-hmm. and isolation for about four hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me set the stage for you. Okay, we're talking maybe. Uh, very similar street systems, I guess okay. you're talking about, both in Japan and in the West, uh, with regards to city planning, I suppose. It's, it's amazing how city planning yeah. has such an impact on the development of martial arts, right? Were, so, Weren't the Japanese streets wider, I thought? Uh, 
I could be wrong. I am not an expert on this. I, I would I, love to. I, 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 would, I openly acknowledge I'm basing this on Last Samurai, so I could be very wrong. I would love to. I would love to uh, to look this up. Okay. Um, but what I'm talking about is that there's a there's a rough parody in that yeah. you have urban centers swelling yeah. during okay. this point, both okay. in Europe and in Japan. Mm-hmm. So I am a uh, I am a Japanese swordsman samurai. I've got the two swords. I've got the katana and the wakizashi, and of course, uh, very similar to uh, European development uh, back during the Warring States period, the Sengoku era. Right. Uh, you had very beefy swords, indeed. Mm-hmm. You had some very large, the Nodachi, the Odachi, the Nagamaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had some very, uh, and the Naginata as well, which some people count as a sword, some people count as a polearm. I'd love to do a follow-up episode with my sensei about that one, but we'll just have to file yeah. that away for the future. Um, but you, you, you had a similar uh, thing, where uh, relative peace ensued, yeah. large-scale battles, uh, you know, they died down a little bit, and so you saw the development of smaller, lighter, um, uh, but still very robust blades, right. as, as anybody familiar with the forging process mm-hmm. of Japanese swords goes. So I've got two of these. Uh, or I, 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 I've got my katana, I've got my wakizashi, right? right? And you are a swordsman... It, you can choose either Spanish or Italian yeah. or whichever right. whichever system you choose. I presumably you've got a rapier and possibly a parrying dagger as well. Okay. Who, in your opinion, wins that confrontation and why? So, with again the proviso, I know next to nothing on Japanese. Excellent. Uh, I'd love to educate you on that yeah. subject. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. There was a kinjitsu instructor in Dallas who did Scarborough. Okay. So his thought, and it's kind of where I have stuck with. Yeah. But I'm more than willing to be convinced otherwise. Yep. And of course, first thing is, what's the quality of the mint? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. I was. I was. I, it, it always comes down yeah. to the prowess and right. the study and the you know the wits yeah. of the individual fighter. And thank yeah. you so much for yeah. acknowledging that. because there are many people who won't. Right. There are many people oh, who yeah. will say categorically, "Oh, this weapon will oh, yeah. always defeat this." Oh weapon. yeah, we've got fanboys all over the. Internet. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah, just post anything on YouTube. You'll, you'll oh yeah. Um, and assuming we were both new to seeing the other weapons. Yep. So we had we were working within our system and not having the time to have figured out counters because over contact, you okay. would, you, you, the systems themselves would change to deal with what you're okay. facing. Um, Let, well, let's talk about let's let's give the proviso that there's a general familiarity okay. that these weapons exist, but perhaps not right. extensive had, experience with had, the had other not, style. I've not seen how it's really used. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. I think the European would have the advantage. Okay. Based on the longer weapon and the lack of hand protection on the katana. Gotcha. The suba because being it, the, yeah, the if, I, if I was facing that, I'd be t- I'd be keeping my distance and taking fingers as best I could. Gotcha. And very very smart, by the way. In in uh, in, in mm. this is something that you'll never see in Hollywood, just because it's it ends the fight too quickly yeah. and is not interesting. Therefore, yeah. but uh, <laughs> if you're in a sword fight, you go for the hands yeah. and you go for the wrists. You go for the thing that allows the person to hold that weapon, um, mm. which is just common sense. The other big advantage I think the the European would have, yeah, on first encounter, okay, is the disengage. The disengage, being the, uh, moving your point around the hand holding the yeah, weapon. Basically, I throw the thrust, you get a block, and I drop and come underneath to attack on the other side. I see. My understanding, while while the katana can be used to thrust, it isn't at nearly as prevalent as it is with the Europeans, or as refined, in that it hasn't become a focal point at that point. 
and especially with two. I, I would agree that yeah. it has not become a yeah. focal point. It is, it is definitely a the, the the thrust is definitely yeah. prevalent within right. uh, at least the Shinkaiger system. Yeah. And I can only, by the way, mm. proviso: I am not speaking for any other Japanese yeah. sword fencing system. Just mm. in case you're listening and assuming that I'm talking about all katana yeah. uh, work, uh, I am only speaking from my experience as somebody in the Shinkaiger tradition. <laughs> and also, since most katana is going to be two-handed. Mostly, but, I mean, I, it, I know there's exceptions, yeah. but mostly, yeah, you're not getting those smaller actions from the wrist for a thr- for redirecting thrust that you see. Therefore, while you might be able to respond, um, I'm going to use the Italian term instead of disengage a cavazione. Okay. Instead of doing, uh, you, while you might be able to pick up a cavazione, I don't think you would pick up the ricavazione. Okay, so the the disengage following the disengage, yeah, basically a double disengage. Okay, gotcha. Um, those, I think, would be the big advantages I'd have. Okay. His comment uh, at the time was, when they were choreographing this out, was, well, you're going to win. And his thought was, you have a longer weapon. As If you can control distance, I can never get to you. Because you can get a killing shot before I can do that. I see, I see. Now, um... And, it, and okay. on, the other side, on the other side, the uh, Japanese main attack is going to be a series of cuts, which... Are going to be familiar. They're going to be. It's a different weapon, but Europeans because the rapier was still cut a yeah. cutting weapon, and you were still facing seeing other things such as pole arms and uh, maybe well versed in the defense you, against cuts. Your mental architecture of putting together a fight has an answer waiting for that response. Okay. Whereas on first encounter, the Japanese system may not have an answer to this problem. I see. You give it six months. Oh, there's going to be an answer. Gotcha. But on first encounter, there w- there may not be. That's the the advantage I see coming in. I see, I see. So if I may provide a counterpoint, oh, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, there is when you're talking about Western uh, fencing versus uh, t- to use very crude yeah. uh, terms, when you're talking about Western versus Eastern martial arts, you're mm-hmm. also talking about very different mindsets, of course. Right. Um, my sensei, uh, mm-hmm. back in, uh, I believe it was 2015, uh-huh. uh, Minnesota Renaissance Festival. I would love for you to meet him, by the okay, way. Yeah. Sensei Al Kilgore yeah. at the Kaishin Dojo. Okay. Uh, you two would get along great, I'm uh-huh. sure. Uh, they, uh, uh, he, he brought up the idea that... I, I, and I had a rapier with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he demonstrated that, okay, you hold the rapier, and I thrust at him. Mm-hmm. And then he just continues going with the blade in him to 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 cut his target he he often breaks it down to the idea that the goal with european swordsmanship is to kill your opponent and leave the battlefield alive the goal being with japanese swordsmanship that you're just there to kill your opponent now in this hypothetical confrontation mm-hmm. i've imagined here i like to think that at least both fighters going into this yeah. have a healthy sense of self-preservation oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I, because even if you layer on the samurai ethos yeah. and the idea that you know dying for your lord is a beautiful thing which by the way, a lot of the writings on Bushido, as yeah. we know it, came about during this mm-hmm. long period of peace, yeah. relative mm-hmm. peace yeah. in, in, in Japan. Um, and so you had a lot of time without large-scale conflict right. to think about these things mm-hmm. and, um, you know, pontificate on what, a, on what the value should be. Right. You know, um, now if I'm incorrect about any of this, I do stand to be correct, yeah. listeners, just so you know. So, um... I wonder very much whether a Japanese swordsman would stop necessarily already just upon being uh, struck with a thrust and might not let a blade stop him from closing the distance. Well, well, on the European side, this is one of the places where when you start reading this in the text, it goes against the, again, our fencing frog DNA, because they aren't playing for points. Yep. 
Okay. Uh, sure. okay. Yep. Um, so the Bolognese described this really well. Um, you have two basic low-line guard positions. You have your Cotolunga, which is the sword basically on its on the sword side, just outside your leg. Okay. Uh, outside your thigh. Yep. And the Portofero, which is on the other side, uh, so across your body. Okay. If I thrust you from Cotolunga, I move to Portofero before I withdraw the sword. Okay. Or vice versa. In the words of uh, a friend of mine, you stir up the squishy bits. <laughs> you kind of st- like 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 uh, imagine just uh, scrambling an egg. Yeah. And they yeah. they they very much take into account that a thrust may kill you, but it won't stop you. Yep. So bolognese, you're look, usually looking at triple actions. Okay. I thrust, I cut, and then I do a th- uh, third cut. I see. It just clears whatever's coming behind So you. a European swordsmanship will not necessarily just count on that yeah. thrust landing, even oh, yeah. if it's in a vital place. Oh, yeah. Okay. It, basically, unless you happen, from my understanding, unless you happen to hit the throat or the temples, or like an, or an I eye, see. Um, you're rolling a d20 as to whether or not it's a quick kill or a he's going to die eventually. Gotcha, gotcha. Even something in the area of the heart, you may miss it. Gotcha. And the whole mindset is, I need, um, I have to get out of distance before I stop fighting. Yep. Um, there, what you find in a lot of them is the concept of tempo and... Again, the time that I focus yeah. on, especially the Spanish, are writing in a very scientific notation. Yep. But it's scientific for their time. Gotcha. Meaning you have to read Aristotle's physics or have somebody explain enough of it to unfollow what the, the descriptions are getting. Gotcha. To read Aristotle's yeah. physics. Get the audiobook. <laughs> yeah, uh, get the audiobook. But uh, one of the big pieces is Aristotle's way of measuring time. Okay. A tempo is either the stillness between two motions or the motion between two stillnesses. Okay. So in the Bolognese system, which has a huge number of guards, your guard positions are your stillnesses. I if see. I am not in a guard position, I better not be I better be moving. I see. So when I thrust you and okay, my sword is in your chest, that extended arm, that is not a guard position, so I'm not stopping until I'm safely back in one. I see. So a, mo- a lot of cuts, that cut is coming and then I'm once the blade is inside you, I'm cutting through you to get back to a guard pit. I see, I see. Uh, because what I was about to bring up is that uh, you're talking about the uh, the goal being, uh, if I have you correctly, as yeah. the, as the European swordsman uh, as the European swordsman wants to do to uh, get into distance, cut thrust, mm-hmm. and get back out of distance yeah. and return to the relative safety yeah. of a guard position. And again, this is my understanding of. Italian, Spanish. Gotcha. I get the impression the Germans would more like to just get in close and break you. Oh, oh the Germans are very fond of uh, that, a aren't fr- they? A friend made a wonderful comment about uh, German grappling, uh, medieval grappling, yep. and I think it was Aikido. Yep. That there was some, is either Aikido or Hapkido, there's some action that's just about identical to a certain point, and then you get to a philosophical difference. Gotcha. Because if I'm saying Aikido, I'm going to move you over here so you can reconsider the error of your ways. Yeah. If I'm German, I'm going home. Yep. And I don't care what it does to you, yeah. but I'm going home. That's true. Now, I would also say that the uh, <laughs> the, the jujitsu yeah. pr- practitioner yeah. might feel very differently, more along the lines of the of Germans the, than, oh, yes. the, than oh, the Aikido yes. practitioner it, on the, that one. The actual action was identical up to a certain point. Gotcha. Everything was the same until this spot. Because what I was about to bring up is uh, just that exact thing, grappling. Now, yeah. uh, your average uh, your average European swordsman, I'm sure, would have a... With, within the defensive manuals that I've seen... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
the defensive and the and the uh, I guess you could say also offensive yeah. uh, uh, European swordsmanship uh, uh, schools is that there I- there is at least a rudimentary coverage of some kind of grappling, some kind of boxing, yeah. if that were. Uh, would, is that prevalent within the Spanish and Italian systems? So. Going through period, yep. so apparently boxing you don't actually see punches as much. Interesting. Until later p- point, and I've heard a theory on this, okay. which would be an, an almost an entire full other podcast to cover yeah. it. Okay. Um, but for like the, the medieval, the long sword stuff of the fifteenth century, uh, early fifteenth century, yep. grappling is the core. Oh yes, if very you, much. If so. you can't do the wrestling, grappling, and limb breaks, you shouldn't be picking up the sword yet because everything is foundational and built upon yes. that. And of course, um, this is also during a period where armor yeah. is very prevalent. And yeah. One way you defeat armor is to cave it in with a very heavy mallet or, yeah. a, or, or a mace. The other way yeah. is to get them into a place where you can bind their limbs yeah. and use physics right. to your advantage and defeat yeah. the armor that way. Um, but even um, later, you look at Morozo in the 1530s, who is an unarmored system. He's one of the, he's one of the two first Bolognese instructors. Okay. And he is showing all kinds of evil, mean, nasty things to do when somebody comes at you with a knife. Um, Those are some of my favorite things. And you see it start to drop off somewhat in the 17th century, but I don't even know then if it's really dropping off or just being relegated to, this is this art, I'm writing a fencing manual. Gotcha. Because I want to say one of them effectively says... This is important information, but you've got a sword in your hand, so don't get close and grapple. Yeah. I'm going to throw a couple moves in so I can sell the books because people expect it, but yeah. you've got a sword. Use the sword. Gotcha, um, gotcha. But even later into the 1660s, I want to say, yeah. I don't remember exactly when it is. I think it's Hoistler, but I could be wrong. I mainly remember that it's the Louis the, Louis the Sun King ribbon giant yeah. um wig period and they're doing the full grapples and throws and leg sweeps and okay. everything Excellent. so yeah those arts were completely prevalent throughout very good to know very yeah. good to know um, you do get interesting local variations Fabris has a really nice point so you see a lot of European uh, 16th 17th century manuals cloak being used with sword yes cloak being of course a common yeah. piece and, of uh, gentleman's attire right and the the idea at the time even was that this was once done on out of desperation but then stuck around because it worked yeah but Fabris actually makes the statement because he had his book is written in single sword sword and dagger sword and cloak and the reason he has cloak in there is because many cities outlaw the wearing of a sword and dagger together oh but nobody's going to keep you from wearing a cloak of course not and basically different city laws to try to reduce brawling okay. I've, I've heard of places that sword and buckler wasn't legal I don't remember where and that's been a long time so that, that one's a grain of saltishness okay. but I do know the phrase swashbuckler comes from the clatter of the buckler hitting your sword hilt as you're wearing on the side and that was basically your street toughs wa- walking around basically being intimidating and picking fights gotcha so we're talking renaissance jar- uh, jets and sharks yeah <laughs> very much so so Okay, so to dive back into the uh, hypothetical uh, fight that we have going on, yep. if I have you correctly, so uh, to, to summarize, uh, you having the longer weapon and mm-hmm. the uh, and the answers to cuts, yep. uh, a, a, a rudimentary, at, at the very least, I don't know how extensive the grappling system right. is, mm-hmm. uh, but you... You at least know how to grapple. Yep. Uh, so my challenge as the uh, Kenjutsu fencer mm-hmm. is to get inside your bubble of protection. Right. And fuck you up. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, which is the idea. Would you think that uh, uh, I would imagine going straight to double fence might be 
uh, an advantageous idea. The walk is actually being slightly longer than your, than most of your parrying daggers, mm -hmm. while also having that needle-sharp thrusting point if yeah. need be. Mm -hmm. So, the challenge being, I have to avoid your point, mm -hmm. I have to avoid your... Uh, quick return mm -hmm. cuts mm -hmm. because you are very much interested in cutting me as well yeah. as thrusting at me. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course make sure that I can get to you on the ground with yeah. several sharp things inside you mm -hmm. before you have a chance to pull that dagger out yeah. as well. And uh... You know, uh, I'm not going to have a good chance of getting at your at least your yeah. primary hand either. At further up the arm, maybe. Yeah. But I'm not going to get a good chance because you got that nice mm -hmm. hand protection. Yep. My thought is. Yep. If I were in your position, I would try to get somebody to give me, me to commit to my inside, either that some kind of action on the boy on my sword to yep. knock me to take me aside. Yep. And then go for a cut on the outside of my uh, sword arm. I see. To keep you away from my dagger. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, um... And I would probably stick with the two-handed action. You think so? Okay. And unless your school is stud does a lot of that it, dual it, weapon... It, it doesn't necessarily. It's not our focus, it, but it, it, uh, we have trained yeah. at times with to, the... To an extent, though, yeah. I would say, you know, if it was a full-out fight, yep. stick with your strength. Don't fight my fight against me. I see. I use my two-handed leverage against you right. if possible. Right. And use what you your, your is your more instinctual weapon. Got to one that you don't have to think about. I see, because one of the other concepts I was about to bring up to you is that there are these. There's a concept within at least our school called an entry, mm -hmm. uh, which is that of course, if you just imagine two Japanese swordsmen yep. in the center guard posture yep. away from each other, mm -hmm. uh, the center guard posture is very strong because right. I can respond to a lot of different yep. threats very shortly. Mm -hmm. uh, it covers pretty much my entire upper body. Yep. My blade is pointed squarely at your throat. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and I can do quite a bit from there. So right. it's basically a fortress, is right. how we think about right. it, at least within our system. So um, you have to break open the walls of that fortress in order to get inside. Right. And one of those things is a quick action mm -hmm. uh, to beat aside the blade and follow it up with a quick attack. Right. Um, I imagine that that's going to be central to my strategy, mm -hmm. uh, is to use an entry on you to mm -hmm. get the sword, point, uh, blade far outside uh -huh. the uh, realm of where it's useful mm -hmm. and get inside your defense, yeah. cut you as quickly as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything, are there concepts like that that are analogous to entries yeah. within uh, within uh, European swordsmanship? Yes. Because I've seen some, uh, I've seen some videos on uh, German messer fencing yeah. where it's very much a, um, at least within that system, uh, a response to a cut followed up. Yeah. I'm going to use that Attack mm -hmm. in order to uh, in order to get inside and kill the enemy. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily breaking open my enemy's defenses and dispatching so, that way. For the Bolognese, the one that I've studied the most is a 1572 manual, uh, Giovanni Delagoche. Okay, and he, I love it because it's done as a lesson plan. It's done as a conversation over six days. Okay, and the structure to it to me is wonderful. The first day is, here's all your basics, here's your cuts, here's your guards, here's your stances, okay. here's all the basic con core concepts. Okay. Day two is, from your five resting guards, um, here is defenses against every possible attack at you. You know, I'm in my Cotolunga Istretta, he cuts a squalembro to my head. I could do this, yep. or I could do this, or I could do this. Yeah. Here's those five. Okay, what if he, cut, if he cuts here? I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. So it's basically, here's all my defenses for my guard positions. Okay. Day three is, he's not attacking me. Oh, well, here's how you provoke an action out of him. Okay. So here are my safe tempos to attack, which are when, when we're in distance and he lifts his sword to cut, to attack. 
That is a tempo that I can strike. I see, okay. When I have blocked a shot, now I have a tempo to strike. When he throws a cut that's missed, I have a tempo as he's coming back on guard. Okay. If he injudiciously changes his guard inside of distance, I have a tempo to strike. Or when he lifts his front foot to step, because his body's committed now to that action, I can strike him in that tempo. Okay. Um, so, one of the ones that happens if he doesn't move, I use the back side of my sword and I beat his blade away. I see. So you do something right. akin to an entry. And, okay. Yeah, an action on the blade. And the way that fits in, your sword's gone over here. Hey, look, you injudiciously changed your guard inside a distance. <laughs> and you, you made me do it. You didn't intend to. <laughs> yes, but... Yeah, or, I, or what I of, often comes up, it, we don't see it as much among modern participants, but it, it is in the manuals. Yeah. And it's something, I think, with more... As time goes by, as people get to a higher skill level yeah. and train it enough, throw a, purposely, a purposeful miss. So oh. there's... I throw a shot knowing it's going to miss to get to expose this target that you're going to come to, but I'm already rolling into the block and thrust in. I see. There's even one case of a faked parry. A faked parry, you yeah. say? Your shot's coming in, I move as if I'm going to parry it, and I let my parry miss as I'm sliding away to take your arm as you go past. Ah, uh, so you, you, you rely on evading the action rather than parrying it so you can redirect your sword to offense. Right. And basically on that one, I'm faking the parry so that you don't pull out of the attack and you keep staying committed to it. I see, I see. Also, they have what's called um, Straits of the Half Sword. Straits of the Half Sword. S-T-R-A-I-T? Yes. Okay. And if you're studying longsword, when they talk about half-sorting, they mean your offhand is grabbing your blade, so you've got a two-handed grip. Yeah. In the later Bolognese cut-and-thrust style, the half-sword is when our blades are kissing at the halfway point. Oh, okay. So we're basically at a moment... And it is a very brief moment of equilibrium. I see. Between our fort and our foible. Yeah, usually right somewhere in the middle. Like a perfect X. Somewhere almost. in the middle. Okay. And it's always true edge to true edge or false edge to false edge because you're yep. equal, at least in that system, it's always true, true to true or false to false. You have that moment of equality, and it'll give here are six actions from this side you can do, and six single tempo counters. Okay. Because that's all the time you have. Gotcha. And then from the other side, they'll do it. But then once you've trained those and practiced those, and I've got a friend who's done this enough, he throws a cut, I go to bluff, hey, look, we're at the straights of the half sword, and he just rolls straight into the next action. I see. Okay. Okay. So those are the kind of things that we would do on our system to deal with, because if somebody is in a blade-in-line position where their point's at you, yeah. you can't just straight attack them. You have to address the blade. Exactly. The Spanish are famous for holding their sword at the guard of the right angle where it's fully extended forward. Now, it's important to notice. note with this, that is done at defensive distance or further, once I get closer, I don't stay arm locked. Oh, yeah, locked. of course not, yeah. I, I am not a Frankenfencer. Yeah. But, um, but doing that forces your opponent to address the blade. It doesn't always in modern competition because I'm 5'6". One of my uh, fight partners is 6'7". Yeah. He's got a longer sword. He could, with for competitively with blunts on our blade, hit me without me being able to touch him. Okay. However... As you mentioned, that thrust may not stop me. Therefore, he could just be walking into a double kill, which is a horrible thing. And but also, yeah. admittedly, how most swordsmanship confrontations probably ended. Among unskilled fighters. Okay. Um, the big thing in a lot of these systems, at least especially once as you get thrust, is I should not be uh, thr- attacking you. If your blade, if I don't have control of your blade, either control through steel or control through time. I see. Control through steel meaning I've got your blade closed off. I've got the entire, I've got that entire line of engagement closed. Now I thrust you on the line that I've got. Yeah. Or 
can uh, I can um, dominance of time of you've thrown the shot and missed. I've beaten your blade aside. You have to take more time to come back than I need to hit you. I see. Okay. If I don't have those two situations, I should be working on gaining those situations. I shouldn't be working on hitting you yet. Excellent. And most double kills happen when people attack out of time, which happens because we have safety equipment. We have fencing masks. Yep. Fight without a fencing mask? I don't re- recommend doing no, that at home. Oh, God, no. Yeah. And suddenly, you have actions that are, okay, that was stupid. If we had, if we had safety gear, that would have been a double. I saw what was coming, and I said no. I see. It is interesting, because we find ourselves having uh, mutual kills a lot yeah. within Shobu, within the Japanese system. Yeah. And maybe I, I have to uh, throw the caveat out there that perhaps that is an artifact of the training. Yeah. And uh, that, uh, I mean... None of us. None of us living today. Right. I'm, I'm safe to say that none of us living today have seen a lethal confrontation with swords. Right. So this is. there's always going to be a part of this. There's always going to be a margin of error when we're yeah. talking about these things that is just up to speculation. Yeah. Not, not only have we not seen it, and this is, I think, a problem with the modern culture, yeah. is we all have really bad... Was it Dunning-Kruger effect? Dunning-Kruger effect, yes. Where, you know... <laughs> Almost all of us think we are better at this than we are. Oh, yes. Because we're marking ourselves against each yeah. other. But especially on what is our yeah. level of skill within our system. Yeah. I can win all my fights. I'm an expert in this yeah. system. Really? Let me see your lunge. Huh. Your arm's out of alignment. Uh, yeah. Let me see this. Okay, you're, this is off. Because um, it's very few places. There are some. Yeah. But very few places that actually train to the level of expertise. Yeah. That would be expected at a time when your life is actually on the line. It's one of the reasons that I've heard Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu recommended mm-hmm. uh, very heavily is that it will cut it will cut through that Dunning-Kruger effect like yeah. a knife through butter. Mm-hmm. Because you can see in real time yeah. and experiment in real yeah. time what works, what doesn't, mm-hmm. and why. Yeah. And to an extent, a lot of the unarmored systems, that's a lot easier to do. Oh, yes. Um, yes. But of course, when you're talking about weapons, the stakes yeah. are just higher. Right. Yeah. yeah. Basically, once you start, once we're talking weapons, now we're dealing with the fact that we're all using safety gear. Yeah. And whatever we do is going to have some layer of artificiality throw in. Yeah. The best you can do, um, I think it's Bill Grandy School in Virginia, they have like three or four different sets of rules. I see. So they don't learn to fight to a rule set. They've got different things to work on that. I you see. Know, I do, I've done this stuff for a long time. Yeah. I've never done serious cutting drill. I, don't, I haven't had the sharp blade to do it. Yeah. Meaning, okay, I can throw a cut that'll get a point on you. Would it actually have cut you in a real fight? I don't know. I haven't trained those I skills. See. see, I'm happy to say that in the Japanese yeah. system, we're very happy to yeah. cut targets. And uh, most places do that. Uh, yeah. or a, lot, a lot of the Asian ones do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, eat, for whatever group you're in, whatever you're doing, there is a built-in bullshit factor. This is true. Which is yes. our safety margins. Yes. And... The best we can do yep. is try to figure out what those factors are yeah. to the best of our ability. And be honest with ourselves be as well. Ourselves. And one thing, and one that everybody has, what finishes a fight. Yeah. SCA, we have light switch kills. I hit you in the stomach, you hit me shortly afterwards, I get the win, even though we'd both be dead. Not We're not as extreme as Olympic fencing, where I hit you a thousandth of a second faster, yeah. I get the touch. Um... Some of the HEMA groups have the afterblow, which is, I hit you, you have the time of one step to get a counter-strike, and then if you do, the point's thrown out. I see. However, that then discounts actions that would be an instant kill. Indeed, indeed. 
So it's only by really uh, thinking very deeply about these things mm -hmm. and to study them from multiple angles, yeah. from the drill and yeah. from the manual mm -hmm. and from the uh, and from the sparring aspect yeah. that we can really try and, uh, yeah. like you said, there's always going to be a, a, a bullshit factor. Yeah. There's always going to be a margin of error. So yeah. we can try and get as close as we possibly yeah. can to it, and that's the best we can do yeah. at the end of the day. To, to an extent, the historic of what they did is a platonic ideal, and yeah. we are never going to get there unless we have people who yeah. are way too stupid yeah. doing stuff. Or like, unless firearms disappear magically from the universe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we've got those idiots in Germany who are out there and cut cut their arm open. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that video, but... What? Oh, okay. First thing, I was wondering if you were talking about Mansura duels, which... No, 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 no. No, this was morons in the woods with long swords. Oh, lovely. And it's yeah. good to know that Europe has those too. <laughs> you know, not just the it, United it, it States. Was, it was enlightening to find that the one that happened to the guy would not stop the fight. I mean, his arm at the elbow, you had like a thick slice of ham just hanging out. Oh! He laughed about it and kept fighting. Okay. So um, that if, was not a fight finisher. Let's see if we can find uh, that YouTube video. We'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, after this conversation yeah. with you, what, if, what the, the thing that I've most learned about mm -hmm. this hypothetical confrontation yeah. is that I really want to try this with yeah. you sometime yeah. with some steel, you know, some unsharpened oh, steel. Actually, no, another recommendation to it, I think it is Journal of Asian Martial Arts number nine. Okay. Matt Gallus did an amazing article, and Matt's one of the big European guys. Yep. And it was Japanese Kinjitsu and a comparison of Japanese Kinjitsu and German Longsword. Okay. And was this an uh, was this a guy from the Arma Association? No, no. Okay. Because I've Clemens group. Yeah. I've no. uh, yeah because yeah. yeah no um, Matt Gallus is he he is serious legit scholar. Yep. Um, and it started out with the okay first thing we're gonna do is get rid of the who is better argument. Yes, thank you. Yes. And coming at it with complete respect yes. from both sides, he, look at all the ways they are similar and going through all of these similarities, including things I never would have expected. Yeah. There is one Kenjutsu school that included holding the blade. So effectively... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 yeah. we do that a little bit in yeah. the... In the, uh, in the um, Kaishin Shinkairu yeah. uh, style, but it's not, uh, of course, a grasping right. of the right. hand it, around it was, the blade. Yeah, it like, it's oh. it's more uh, laying on the hand of the on the back of the okay. blade for reinforced uh, yeah. block, reinforced right. cut sometimes mm -hmm. on the forearm. Right. But it, it is known to yeah. happen certainly. Yeah. So he went through that on both sides. Yep. Now that we have this, now look at where the differences are and why they are there. Yeah. To find out more, you finding out more about your system by looking at where somebody else had a parallel evolution that differed. Yes. So one of the big things, some things are obvious. Yeah. You do not have a morge slog in Kenjutsu. Nope. Because, <laughs> you do not. Because you don't have Kuyans. You have Suka Uchi, certainly, yeah, right. which is hitting with the uh, end of the... Effectively uh, a palm uh, strike. Uh, Suka, yeah, yeah palmal yeah. strike. Uh, but you do not have morge slog, no. no. <laughs> uh, for those listening at home, if you don't know, a morge slog is a German action where you basically flip the blade yep. and use the Kuyans, uh, the cross guard, yep. as a big spiked hammer to punch through a helmet. Yep. Um... Called the Mor the Morschlag yeah. translates to murder blow. Yeah, the which if you're a modern German speaker, we know it doesn't in modern German. It did in yeah in 15th century. Indeed. Um, but um, the two of the big things he had was one. Oh, let's see. The katana is shorter. It's curved and it's single edged. So you have differences as to what are optimal actions. One thing with being shorter and lighter. If we but cut and go to a cross yeah. where the blades are intersecting, what I refer to as straight to the half sword. Yeah. With a katana, the most efficient action is quickly reversing and cutting on the other side. Because of the length of the longsword, the most efficient action is now going into a winding and binding action to control the blade 
as effectively wrestling the blade yeah. and playing strong against weak and leverage games to get in there and that's where you're going to go yeah. because that is what is most efficient with this blade versus that blade. Yeah. And he takes it in much greater detail because, again, he's an expert in two styles I know very little I'd about. I'd very much like to read this article, sir. But yeah. uh, uh, wrapping up here, yeah. uh, let's just say that it, it, it would be an incredibly interesting confrontation and that it, uh, in purely a scholarly yeah. sense, oh, of yeah. course, I would love to explore this mm-hmm. at some point. Um, uh, but unfortunately, that is yeah. all we have time for today. Ernesto, thank you so oh, much for absolutely. meeting with me. I really appreciate I that. Yes. Um, do you have any uh, creative projects coming up that you would like to plug, or uh, any uh, interesting uh, scholarly uh, events coming up that you think would be of interest to our listeners? Um, it's pretty much too late for the listeners, I'm assuming, because payment deadline's tomorrow. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm actually arranging a Spanish Distraiser workshop in town in a week. Um, in fact, I'm from here I'm heading over to meet up with the instructor from Spain who's coming in. Excellent, uh, Ta- excellent. Ton Pui, that's T-O-N-P-U-E-Y. Look okay. up his stuff on YouTube. Among other things, he has, in my opinion, the best videos of Figurata's uh, Portuguese Montante Greatsword. Uh, he goes through all the, the actions of it. That is so very you can see interesting. Them very me. nicely done. And he is one of the most beautiful fighters you will ever see. Good to know. Everything is elegant, very musical. They said Spanish fencing looked like dancing. He really does. Excellent, um, excellent. Yes, I we, we would love to see yeah. more about that, certainly. Um, after that, once uh, that's done and my schedule opens up, I'm kind of just... I want to start working on a lot of stuff on researching on the Distraza tradition. Okay. Uh, notably trying to put together what are called synoptic tables. You see these in 19th century um, Italian texts. Where it's effectively decision tree done kind of like an Excel model. Okay. Model. <laughs> like I, I've, I've actually taken Gogler's um, synoptic trees and turned them into Excel, which kind of gives you decision patterns and it, it lets us use some modern analytic tools to see where tendencies and trends happen. This is this is nerds for you. They're going to bring spreadsheets in yeah. at some point. Unfortunately, that one the copyrights elsewhere. So I, while I have it for my own study, I can't give those ones out. Gotcha. But gotcha. Uh, I want to try to do that with Spanish. Nobody's done it to my knowledge. Excellent. Uh, we only have a few of their texts translated at this point, and they're the ones that are the most. You have to have understanding of their writing system to understand their text because gotcha. they were written effectively in many ways in a historical scientific notation. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so that, those, that's, I think, part of the reason why Italian has taken off better than Spanish, because it's easier for a modern person to read the Italian. I see. Yeah. And there's more illustrations. Illustrations help. Um, Let's be honest. The, the pictures help. A, again, this would be a full other side discussion. Yeah. Uh, the book industry in Renaissance Spain was much more stunted than it was in Italy. Interesting. Because any book had to be approved through the Inquisition. Oh, jeez. Pesky Inquisition. It wasn't even a case... Nobody expects it. It wasn't even a case that they were, you know, destroying, you know, ruining the books or anything. It was more of just, it was expensive and time-consuming to go through the process. Yeah. Very similar to going through a publication process today at a major publishing house. Bureaucracy, am I right? Effectively, (laughs) the the Inquisitor were your editors. Oh, okay. So, but... Because of the amount of time and expense involved in getting good editors like that, yep. they didn't have the bookbinding industry, which led to not having the copper plate skills that you have in Italy. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yes. Thank you, Church, for fucking it up once again well, for us. On the fair side, <laughs> the Elizabethans had the same had a similar problem. Gotcha. If you look, uh, if you find the Italian Degrassi and the English Degrassi and look at the illustrations, oh my God, the English is worthless. Oh, is One it? One more reason why it was hard to figure this stuff out with foils and epes when we were working out of that book. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. 
horrible, horrible misinformation. Anyway, I would love to. I would love to have a, a side discussion on that at some point. And once I return from Seattle around August or so, oh, I'm yeah. very interested in maybe grabbing some blunt steel and let's okay. see if we can apply these principles Absolutely. in real time. Ernesto, thank you so much for joining me, uh, listeners. Uh, please uh, check us out at SoundCloud.com/slash/FightCastPodcast. Uh, we may have a, uh, another website, another physical website coming soon, so please stay tuned for that one. Meanwhile, uh, please stay tuned to our Twitter handle as well, at FightCastRadio. Uh, have yourselves a great time and uh, defend yourselves uh, to the best of your ability. Uh, work on the circle. Go get inside the guard. Uh, you know, end it quick and uh, mercifully. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, I'm David. This has been Ernesto. Uh, Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Go above and beyond and follow us at Fightcast Podcast and check out our blog and new episodes at fightcastpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer. <laughs>